This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. On May 11th, the United States will end the COVID-19 public health and national emergency declarations. At the same time, the White House will disband what's left of its COVID response team. As the emergency phase of the pandemic winds down, so have infection rates. According to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, last week the U.S. saw an average of 21,000 new COVID cases. For some context, at its highest peak in January of 2021, the U.S. saw 250,000 new cases in one week. But with more people relying on home tests and state-reported data becoming more sporadic, what do those numbers really mean? Meanwhile, the CDC still links about 2,000 deaths a week to COVID, and the end of COVID's emergency status means big changes for how Americans receive COVID care, including access to tests and vaccines. In this edition of our series, Vaccination Nation, we're talking about what it means to be in this phase of the pandemic and how the coming changes will affect you and your family. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump into the conversation by welcoming our guests. Joining us to discuss is Dan Diamond. He's a reporter covering public health policy at The Washington Post. Dan, it's great to have you back. Jen, great to be back. Thanks. Also with us is Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. She's also the senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Gounder, welcome back to 1A. Great to be here. So, Dan, the White House COVID response team, it was created in February of 2020. How significant is it that it's being disbanded? The White House set up this team, uh, initially a very small team under the Trump administration with Deborah Burks three years ago. It grew to about three dozen people at its peak under President Biden. It was much more robust. The first COVID coordinator under the president was Jeff Zients, who has since come back as the chief of staff. So a very central part of the administration. And at this point, it's down to just a a small group of people who are full time. Uh, there, There are still some detailed folks from across the federal government. And officials have told me their goal was to become obsolete, to get COVID to a point that they felt 
Americans have largely moved on. Now, whether or not Americans should be moving on, I think, is a different question. But the White House team has prepared for the next month and a half as, as kind of their swan song. There are a number of priorities they're trying to get done before the public health emergency ends, but they think that this is the moment to disband. Well, Dr. Ashish Jha, again, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, spoke to medical news organization MedPage today about the end of the COVID public health emergency. Public health emergency is a set of tools, we often call them flexibilities, that health systems and others have around how they deliver healthcare. So you're a hospital. You want to set up beds in your parking lot. Before 2020, you couldn't just go do that for good reason. But in May of 2020, if you wanted to set up beds in the parking lot, the federal government said, go for it, because we knew why you were doing it. You were getting crushed. You needed that space. Our point is, after May 11th, that ability to go set up beds in a parking lot goes away. If you need to set up, you're going to have to go through a whole different set of rules. Dr. Gounder, I'm thinking back to fall of 2022, and there was a concern that there'd be a significant COVID surge in the winter. What do we know about what happened? In the end, the surge was not um, what we had feared. We did see, as you'll remember, an increase in RSV and influenza early in the season, um, August, September, especially among kids. But we did not see the huge COVID surges, especially among adults, that we had seen in the previous years of the pandemic. I want to talk about data right now and the current infection rate. Where do infection rates in the country stand at this moment, Dr. Gounder? We are past uh, the winter season, so we did see an increase in transmission and infections over the winter months. And then um, starting late January, by the end of February, we had really seen um, the rates of infection transmission uh, from COVID across the country really cratering. And what remains unknown, what remains to be seen is, will we see an uptick again over the summer in infections? We have seen increases in infections in the summer months, particularly in places in the South, which makes sense because people go indoors for air air conditioning and you have more transmission indoors. Uh, But we don't yet know if that will happen and and what the final um, seasonality of this virus will be. Now, earlier this month, the New York Times announced that they're shutting down their COVID tracker. Uh, The COVID data tracker from Johns Hopkins University has also gone dark for the first time uh, since it began reporting cases in January 2020. And in announcing the closure of their data tracker. The New York Times said data from state and local sources is reported less frequently and less reliably. Dan, what does that say to you about where we are right now with the pandemic? Jen, I think the pandemic is definitely not over. Uh, It sure seems like our willingness to fight it is, is largely gone. There were polls at the beginning of the Biden administration that said COVID was the nation's top concern, or or maybe the number two concern right after the economy. I've seen polls in the past month that say 3%, 1% of Americans think COVID is is a major concern. And White House officials look at that and say, that's vindication. People have moved on past the pandemic. I also see this in my own world. You mentioned our competitors at the New York Times. At the Washington Post, we offered free COVID testing to staff through the pandemic. That ends this week. I've spoken to infectious disease doctors, one yesterday, who said there's a debate in his hospital about whether to keep wearing masks at this point in the pandemic. But if you look at other numbers uh, beyond even the hospitalizations, you, you, you mentioned the death data, about 
2,000 deaths per week, 300 deaths per day. According to CDC, that data is, is reliable. There's even a chance that that's a bit of an undercount. And if you talk to an immunocompromised person, COVID remains an urgent concern. We've lost some of the treatments to fight the virus as it has evolved. So we are at a moment of, of absolute transition. Many people not only want to move on, they're wondering why we haven't moved on sooner. But not everyone is ready to move with that. And that's where the concern really lies. Well, and Dr. Gounder, how accurate are these reported rates if there's less less tracking happening? And if more people are, for instance, relying on home tests just to see if they are infected, but not reporting that to the state in which they reside? Well, it depends on what you're counting. So if you're counting deaths from COVID, those numbers are pretty accurate. If you're talking about infections, Uh, cases of COVID, those numbers are much less accurate for some of the reasons you mentioned. People are doing their own at-home rapid COVID tests. In addition, the Department of Health and Human Services can no longer, uh, with the end of the public health emergency, will no longer be able to require labs to report their COVID testing data. Um, So some of the sources of data that we've had will be disappearing, and we may be um, shifting gears to use different types of surveillance, um, the kind of thing that we do for other infectious diseases, where you do maybe a random sample of the population at certain points in time to get an estimate of how much transmission there is, as opposed to counting every case. Let's go to this message we got from Bill, who tweets, a year ago, I got on a plane for the first time in over 20 years, and the mask mandate was still in place. The mask mandate dropped a week later, and in November, I got on another plane without a mask. I am very ready to move on from COVID. But then Dan tweets, the COVID waves are not over yet. At my mother-in-law's senior housing, they have 12 active cases of COVID today, including my mother-in-law. Dan, for people who are trying to track the rate of infections in the country, where can they look for reliable data? Well, the CDC data is still being posted, though, as Dr. Gounder Gounder points out. Not only is it already murky, it's about to get a lot cloudier. So the infection rates are, are not particularly reliable, and they're probably only capturing a small fraction of actual infections. The, the death data, which comes from uh, medical examiners and coroners, much more reliable. But obviously, that's not, not necessarily your first stop when you're trying to figure out where to travel, uh, looking at, at the death data. I think it's fair to say that COVID is circulating still at, at relatively high rates around the country in ways that a couple years ago would have been seen as disappointing. But at this point, we are moving increasingly toward uh, endemicity, where, where the virus will just be with us and we have to figure out ways to protect ourselves. And whether that's with vaccines, with rapid tests, if you're going to a place where there might be a crowd of people and, and one of those people might have COVID and you want to better protect yourself, we, we have things that we didn't have at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's another argument for why we're moving out of the emergency stage. As we heard, the U.S. will end emergency status for COVID in May, and the World Health Organization says they plan to do the same later this year. Here's WHO Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus last week during a press briefing. I'm confident that this year we will be able to say that COVID-19 is over as a public health emergency of international concern. We're not there yet. Last week, there were still more than 5,000 reported deaths. That's 5,000 too many for a disease that can be prevented and treated. Dr. Gounder, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on the timing, both in the U.S. and what we're hearing from the WHO, in ending this emergency phase. Well, the the difference is um, 
between saying the pandemic is over, that's different from saying uh, the emergency phase of the pandemic is over. And to Dan's point, we are starting to enter a phase of endemicity where we are going to see continued transmission. And how do we reduce risk from that continued transmission? That needs to be how we're thinking about it now. For about a year now, Americans have been allowed up to eight free COVID tests per month through their insurance plans at no cost. Antigen and PCR tests have been available to everyone, including people without insurance at more than 15,000 sites nationwide. Dr. Gounder, how will the end of COVID as a public health emergency change the accessibility of testing? Well, you're not going to be able to get those tests for free um, the way you were able to before, uh, at least free as in no out-of-pocket expense to you. Insurance companies uh, and Medicare were covering those for many people. Medicaid um, will continue to cover at-home tests for people through September of 2024. Um, So there is some extension there. But for people who have no insurance, um, they're going to be facing the full price, the full ticket price for at-home sales. And what do you expect about the use and availability of Paxlovid? How might that change? Paxlovid um, availability and cost to people really depend on when we run out of what the federal government has purchased. So as long as we have um, supply that the federal government has purchased, that will be provided at no cost to people. But once you run out of that, um, whether it's Paxlovid or other treatments, um, then you're going to be reverting to the usual system, just like you would for your blood pressure medicines or for your insulin, um, where your insurance uh, may or may not cover something. And if you don't have insurance, you may be paying out of pocket. Dan, in some states, people without insurance have been able to access COVID treatment through temporary Medicaid. How are states responding to the end of this emergency phase? So, Jen, this public health emergency status that we've been in for three years has led to significant enrollment increase in Medicaid, the the safety net health program. That's because Congress made states a deal. Uh, You would get more money for your Medicaid program. In exchange, the state couldn't disenroll anybody during the public health emergency. If your income went up too much, you didn't fill out the renewal paperwork, normally you'd be kicked out. But during the pandemic, you could stay on Medicaid. That process is beginning to unwind. Uh, Medicaid had about 70 million people enrolled before the pandemic. I believe the number is more than 90 million now. Of of that 20 million people who have signed up, we may see a shrinking of Medicaid that gets maybe not all the way to 20 million, but 10 million, 15 million people over the next year losing Medicaid coverage. Different states have different policies on how they are approaching the unwinding. There are some very good resources online. Uh, Usually the state Medicaid program, wherever the listener might be be located, has a guide for how the Medicaid program might be changing in the next number of, of weeks or months. If there's some new requirement that has been instituted since the pandemic began. But this this is a real fear. Uh, we know that when people are disenrolled from their Medicaid programs, we've seen this before, before the pandemic, people who lose coverage, many don't immediately get covered right away and will become uninsured. Let's go back to our inbox with this message from Kathleen. I got COVID in March 2020. And again, in February 22, which was followed by long COVID, Uh, my symptoms are frequent brain fog, uh, general exhaustion, 
tinnitus, which I'd never had before February of last year, and uh, occasional double vision. And I'm very concerned about lifting masking requirements for the immunocompromised because every time you get COVID, you're more likely to have long COVID or worsening symptoms. And I don't wish that on anybody. Kathleen, thanks for that message. We also got this email from Jay who says, I am still masking and reasonably distancing, and I am one of the few people I know who hasn't yet caught COVID-19. Due to the risk of long COVID after getting infected, I still don't want to roll those dice. What are the rates of long COVID and long-term health issues, and how are we calling this the end if the aftermath is so devastating to so many? Dr. Calendar, long COVID has been acknowledged by medical experts in the World Health Organization. The National Institutes of Health set up a billion-dollar research program to understand what it is and why some people get it. So to start with Jay's question, what are the rates of long COVID and and how much do we know about those long-term health issues? We still don't have great estimates of how much long COVID there is, in part because there are different definitions. People don't, scientists, doctors don't still agree on exactly how to define it. We don't have a specific test for it. And as you follow people over time, we do see symptoms improve. So if you say, well, are your symptoms lasting three months, six months, one year, depending on where you set the cutoff, you get different numbers. Now, one piece of data that I think is really important for people to know is that vaccination does reduce your risk of long COVID. A recent paper um, from about a week ago from the Journal of the American Medical Association found that um, getting vaccinated reduces your risk of long COVID by at least half, again, depending a bit on how you define these things. Um, so that is one of the most important protections against long COVID. And so how are long COVID and sufferers of it being considered in these conversations about the end of the emergency phase of the pandemic, Dr. Gounder? I think, unfortunately, that's a, they're a bit of an afterthought. Um, I think much more of the focus is on um, the average American who really does want to move on, um, who is tired of um, living under these kinds of restrictions and requirements. Um, And I do think we have to be mindful of that, that there are some people who are being left behind in all of this. And how can we improve protections for the most vulnerable? Um, I think people are tired of taking individual action on behalf of others. And so that really means that we need measures that don't require individuals to step up. And so that that would include things like improving indoor air quality, uh, so filtering the air. We don't ask people to boil and filter their water. Uh, You know, that was a development of the um, late 1800s, early 1900s, that we um, really ensured the quality of the water supply. Similarly, perhaps it's time we do the same for indoor air quality. Well, Dana, I'd love to hear from you on this as well, as someone who, who's been reporting on the pandemic since since it began. What do you make of this? I, I suppose it's a decision that's been made that, yeah, some people are going to be left behind or be left in a more vulnerable state because of some, some of the infrastructure Dr. Gounder is referring to. It, it actually just hasn't been put in place. It is distressing to go through a pandemic that initially supercharged, I think, enthusiasm for public health, funding for public health, people wanting to go into public health. And three years later, there's a lot of anger and frustration toward public health. There are officials across the country, my colleagues at The Post have written about this, who have seen some of their powers uh, to fight pandemics and, and other crises stripped away by local lawmakers. So public health 
writ large is, is in arguably weaker position than when the pandemic began. And as Dr. Gounder is, is discussing about the need to protect people who are most vulnerable, I think one of the big regrets of, of this White House uh, initiative to oversee the COVID response is that there hasn't been more on low on COVID. Uh, that, that's not specifically a White House project. There, there is this trial uh, overseen by, by NIH that's supposed to be enrolling long COVID patients, but it's really running behind. The amount of insight we have on, on how to fight long COVID remains much lower than you would like three years into the pandemic and with people presenting with the varying symptoms that Dr. Gounder alluded to. So I, I think as a health reporter, it's been an unusual arc, Jen, to see so many people so invested in, in public health and then to see the retreat. Uh, yes, we're moving past to the crisis point of the pandemic, but we're, we're going to have to fight not only COVID in the future, but other viruses as well. Dan, after May, how will federal funding for COVID testing, treatment, and research change? It's a great question. So how about I, I set that up a little bit by just talking about where we've been on funding. The White House COVID response has been trying for at least a year, Dr. Gounder may remember better than me, to get more funding from Congress to buy more tests, treatments, vaccines, to invest in the next generation of, of those vaccines and treatments just has not come. Congress has not wanted to set aside more money after setting aside billions of dollars earlier in the pandemic, saying that should be enough. Maybe not all that money was spent well. So there is a limited pool now of, of tests and vaccines and things that we can use to fight the pandemic. We do have some access to that for the foreseeable future. If you are insured, you will still be able to get free vaccines, free COVID vaccines in the future, much like you can get a free flu shot. Uh, but, but there is the risk for uninsured individuals that some of these things will hit them uh, full freight or, or partially. The cost of the vaccine may go up to $100, $130 from Moderna or Pfizer. That cost has not been borne by any individual so far, some of that may be borne by uninsured folks in the future. Dr. Gounder mentioned the tests that have been free under the public health emergency. Seniors can get up to um, eight free tests per month. That is, is going to change. These in-home tests are set to go away. Medicare beneficiaries could still go get a uh, PCR test at a lab, one of those more comprehensive tests. But turnaround time for those tests is likely going to drop because there will be less payment for them and kind of less incentive for the faster turnaround. So the, across the health system, there have been hundreds of different flexibilities because of the public health emergency. All of these things that were waived or bent to make it possible for us to fight COVID as quickly as possible, as those flexibilities go away, there is a trickle effect all across the health system. And I can tell you, Jen, Dr. Gounder knows this too, as we are talking on this radio program, there are lobbyists, there are lawmakers, there are advocates arguing over how do we continue as many of those flexibilities as we can. We're talking about the end of the emergency phase of the pandemic. And coming up, the FDA is considering authorization for a spring booster shot. We check in with NPR's Rob Stein about what that could mean for you. And we'll be back with more from you and our guests after this short break. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to this edition of Vaccination Nation by adding another voice to the discussion. Joining us now is NPR's Rob Stein. Rob is a correspondent and senior editor at NPR, focusing on health, medicine, and biomedical research. Rob, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. So what are you hearing from the FDA about a plan to possibly authorize another COVID booster this spring? Yeah, so just to remind folks, uh, at the moment, people are only eligible to receive one shot with one of the latest boosters. The FDA is planning to make another round of boosters available, but not until next fall. And that would probably be with yet another reformulated version of the vaccines that would target whatever strain of the virus experts think is most likely to be circulating next winter. But now, a federal official told me the FDA is considering authorizing the existing booster for use as a second shot, a second booster. And the reason for that is it's been months since people got their last shots last fall, and the protection people have from those shots has been fading, not only against catching the virus, but also possibly against getting severely ill. Now, this probably wouldn't be for everyone. Instead, it would probably just be for certain people who are considered at high risk, you know, like those who have weak immune systems because they got an organ transplant or some other reason, or, or maybe because they're older, like people who are 65 and older. That's along the lines of what Canada and the UK have done. But the FDA is still sorting out all these details, and some experts want the FDA to open it up more broadly, perhaps even for people as young as 50. Uh, we don't know what they're going to do, but the agency is expected to announce its decision within the next you know, week or two or three, something like that. So it, will this booster be one that's modified to specifically battle the latest variants of COVID-19? No, no. And that's one of the issues. This would involve the boosters that were authorized last fall. Those are the so-called bivalent boosters that target both the original virus and the BA4 and BA5 Omicron subvariants. That's And that's one of the questions about all this. The original virus and those subvariants are now, you know, they're long gone. They've been replaced by another Omicron subvariant known as XBB15. And there's a theoretical concern known as imprinting. That's when you expose the immune system to one strain, you kind of train the immune system to respond to that one. And so maybe giving people too many of these shots could kind of you know, backfire and hinder the immune system's ability to respond to the next variant or, or the next vaccines designed to protect against new variants. And so that's one of the issues the FDA is weighing, especially because the agency is likely to authorize yet another round of updated boosters for that booster campaign I mentioned earlier that's planned in the fall to protect people against whatever new strain or strains of the virus are expected to be dominant next winter. Now, we know vaccine fatigue has been an issue. According to the CDC, 80 percent of Americans have had at least one dose of the COVID vaccine, but only 16 percent chose to get the most recent booster shot. How are people reacting to the idea 
that there may be another booster coming up? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Yeah, you know, as you said, you know, most people who were eligible for the last round of boosters n- never got one, you know. And so chances are the demand for a, another shot now probably would be even, you know, more tepid at this point in the pandemic. You know, people have, most people have kind of just moved on. But, you know, that said, there clearly is a minority of people out there who have been frustrated that they haven't been able to get another shot. And, I, you know, I've spoken to several of them over the last week or two, and they say, you know, that while, while most people are acting like the pandemic's over, they're not. They know that thousands of people are still getting the virus every day and hundreds are still dying. And so they're the kind of people who are still being very careful. They're still wearing masks and taking other precautions, you know, maybe because they're older or have other health problems that put them at risk or or they live with, you know, young children or older people who are at high risk or just because they haven't gotten COVID and don't want to, or maybe they did get it and don't want to get it again, or they're worried about long COVID. So they want to do everything they can to protect themselves and those around them, including getting another booster. Well, that echoes this email we got from Mira, who says the official end of the COVID health emergency is extremely short-sighted. Who knows when the next virus will crop up? As an immunocompromised person, I already feel like a second-class citizen while the rest of the populace has moved on. Rob, are you hearing any concerns about messaging here that the FDA says there's another COVID booster available, but at the same time, the White House is ending this emergency public health phase? Yeah, that is definitely one of the big concerns is, um, you know, because the uptake of the last booster was so low, I mean, as you said, only 17%, you know, there's a big concern that, you know, when they do make this next round of boosters available next fall, that people just won't get it, that, you know, and they, you know, there's a concern that uh, that's one of the reasons why the FDA initially wasn't considering opening up this uh, last booster for another shot this spring. They didn't want to sort of muddy the picture. They're really was a a priority being set on simplifying the whole process. So it would just become much more like the annual flu vaccine where, you know, once a year, you, you know, roll up your sleeve, you get your annual flu shot, you get your annual annual COVID shot. And the hope was that that might sort of, you know, boost uh, demand back up again for the COVID uh, shots next fall. And so that, again, that's one of the issues that the FDA has been weighing in, in trying to decide what to do now for the, for those people out there who are feeling left behind and feel like they do want to do everything to protect themselves because no one around them is really doing anything to protect them. That's NPR's Rob Stein. Rob is a correspondent and senior editor at NPR, focusing on health, medicine, and biomedical research. Rob, thanks for your time. Sure. Thanks for having me. We got this message from Kathy in Maryland who says, are we getting trapped in the semantics of this? Is it still a pandemic or is it endemic, meaning it's here to stay, but it's kind of stabilized? Dr. Gounder, what do you think? I don't think we could say it's stabilized yet because that really means we see um, and can predict with precision accuracy that um, we're going to see a certain level of illness, of infections, of deaths. And we still don't know exactly how this is going to play out. As I said, you know, we don't yet know um, how the seasonality will settle out. Um, so I think to be truly endemic could still be um, a couple years longer, but we are certainly moving in that direction. 
Well, as we talk about the end of this phase of the pandemic, we should also mention the possible beginnings. Uh, The prevailing theory on the origin of COVID-19 is that it spilled over from animals to humans, most likely from a wet market in China. Last month, the Department of Energy released their analysis on the origins of COVID, stating that a lab accident in central China triggered the pandemic. But they also stated that they have, quote, low confidence in this Conclusion. Despite that, the lab leak theory has led to an ongoing investigation by House Republicans. Dan, just lay out what is the story here? <laughs> Where to begin? I guess at the beginning. In, in, in Wuhan, before the pandemic, there was a large market selling live animals and food. And just to give your listeners a sense for it, Jen, imagine a market the size of a couple of football fields with stalls, hundreds of vendors, terrible ventilation, animals in cages being sold for food, some being slaughtered right there. The earliest cluster of confirmed COVID cases has been traced to the market. Many virologists say that that's a strong indication. It's the epicenter of the pandemic's origin. The virus first jumped from an animal in one of those cages to a human working at the market, for example. After the pandemic began, Chinese officials shut down the market. They destroyed the animals being sold there. That complicated some of the search. But Chinese officials did go through, swab the cages looking for clues. And some of that data was finally uploaded to a database uh, recently. A team of virus researchers say it showed a link between the virus and raccoon dogs, kind of fox-like animal that was being illegally sold at the Wuhan market. But that that's far from conclusive. We know that COVID can infect animals as well as humans. Did humans infect the raccoon dogs? Did the raccoon dogs infect the humans? Like, we, we just don't know. In the interim, there has been this intelligence review in the United States trying to get to the bottom of how COVID began. And if you're looking across the network of intelligence agencies, the Department of Energy, the FBI, think that this began with a lab leak in in Wuhan from the Institute of Virology. There are also four other agencies that believe it came from an animal more naturally. So there's a split here. Uh, A few weeks ago, Congress unanimously moved to declassify any intelligence that we have linked to the Institute of Virology in Wuhan and the start of the pandemic. So that report will be coming in the next few months. I'm not sure it will give us any more insight, though. I've, I've talked to people who have looked at that classified intelligence, and they say it's kind of a Rorschach test. If you believe the pandemic began from an animal leap, you, you will find evidence to support that. If you think it began with a lab leak, you'll, you'll see evidence that backs that up, too. Dr. Gounder, how confident are you that we're having the right conversations, at least in the U.S. right now? I think people are more interested in pointing fingers than in actual uh, pandemic preparedness. And I think that's really unfortunate because on so many levels, whether it's funding or staffing um, policies, we're not really um, preparing uh, for the future. We're really just rehashing the past. Well, and again, I just want to note about 2,000 deaths linked to COVID. That's according to the CDC. That's what's happening each week. So what does it mean to move on to the next stage of the pandemic while still being mindful of the ongoing loss, Dr. Gounder? Well, who is dying from COVID now? Um, Something like 90% or more of those deaths are occurring among people Uh, 65 and older. So what can we be doing to better protect that population? What are we doing in terms of, again, indoor air quality uh, in, say, nursing homes? Um, Have we reduced the risk of transmission in those kinds of settings, which were hit extremely hard during the pandemic? What are we doing to reduce the risk for other vulnerable people? We were talking earlier in the hour about Medicaid unwinding and some 
15 million people potentially losing their Medicaid coverage, that will mean that they will have worse access to whether it's um, preventive um, uh, measures, uh, testing and that kind of thing, or treatment when they need it. Um, so I think those are the big picture types of steps we need to be taking. But again, those are not things individuals can do. You know, an individual can line up to get vaccinated, can choose to wear a mask, but an individual cannot um, make sure everybody has Medicaid or some kind of health insurance. An individual cannot clean the air on their own. And so that's something we will have to decide to do as a, as a society. Dan, I want to allude back to something you talked about, which is this sort of breakdown in trust in public health. You know, that lack of trust between the public and, and medical professionals, some of that is rooted in, in biases and medical treatment and historical abuses, but some of it is rooted in the spread of mis- and disinformation during the pandemic. How do you think that breakdown in trust is going to shape policy and our public health response moving forward? That is a big question. I, I think, and a good question, I, I think the issue of COVID origins is totemic of this gen. Uh, this, this is something where two-thirds of Americans believe that COVID leaked from a lab, according to several polls this month. If you talk to virologists, most of them would say the opposite, that it most likely came from natural origins, but they, they are increasingly just being overlooked. And what's interesting to me is most Americans, I bet, would not have done anything differently <laughs> With regards to COVID, it doesn't matter if the virus began in a Chinese lab or an animal sold in the market. That's probably not affecting your decision to wear a mask. But there is fading trust in government and anger towards people like Tony Fauci. It is looking for an outlet. And I think this lab leak issue is one manifestation of where we are. People are mad about where they find themselves with the pandemic, and they're looking for someone to blame. That's Dan Diamond. He's a reporter covering public health policy at The Washington Post. You also heard from Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease specialist in epidemiology, an epidemiologist. She's also the senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Gounder, Dan, thank you so much for speaking with us. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.